Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 181 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a living legend, a British actress revered for her work on the stage, television, and film, who found an international audience as M in eight James Bond films and who has accumulated seven Oscar nominations over the years for 1997's Mrs. Brown, 1998's Shakespeare in Love, 2000's Chocolat, 2001's Iris, 2005's Mrs. Henderson Presents, 2006's Notes on a Scandal, and 2013's Philomena, winning Best Supporting Actress for Shakespeare in Love and returning to Best Actress contention this year for Victoria and Abdul, a Stephen Frears dramedy in which she plays Queen Victoria, which opened in select cities on Friday. Dame Judy Dench. But first, I sat down at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter with one of the most experienced and knowledgeable people in entertainment journalism our film editor, Greg Kilday, to discuss some of what's gone on in the awards race since our last episode a week ago. Greg, thanks for joining me. Good. So we have had an interesting week here. I guess the first thing we should note, the biggest news of the last week, was that the Audience Award out of the Toronto International Film Festival went to Fox Searchlight's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I wonder if you can just contextualize, was this out of the blue? Well, I think it was a surprise in that Although the movie was well-received, it hadn't gotten quite as much buzz as some of the other films like The Shape of Water, another searchlight film in contention, or Call Me By Your Name, Sunny Classics movie, which originally played Sundance, but then reappeared in Toronto and also got great buzz and chatter. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of people say, why does it matter what the audience at the Toronto International Film Festival says when it comes to the Oscars. But I guess it really is a matter of just timing and demographics in the sense that this award is announced just before the voters, in L- mostly in L.A., get bombarded with screeners and screenings. It kind of shapes what they check out. And it also uh, is an interesting simulation because in terms of, I would say, education, age, a lot of other demographics – the Toronto audience is pretty similar, right? It is, and you probably know better than I. How do they actually count up the ballots? Well, at the end of every screening, the attendees are invited to drop their ticket stub into a box. Right. And you can also separately vote online. And who knows how above board all of this is, because you could probably stuff the ballots a little bit. But if that were the case this year, the winner wouldn't have been this somewhat obscure movie with Francis McDormand as the star, it would have been one of these more mainstream type 
Shape of Water, big, big fanboy type movies. Or the Weinstein Company would have gotten a few extra votes in for the current war. Exactly, exactly. So it was funny because on our last episode, we featured a conversation with the artistic director and CEO of TIFF, which was recorded just before the voting ended. And I asked them, I said, guys, this is going to air after it's over, so you can be honest now, you can be forthcoming. Tell me which three you think are most likely to end up as the winner. And nobody said three billboards. So that was kind of interesting. And and I guess, you know, you do have to now look at it in a different light. And I think it's also interesting to note that the runner-up was an acquisition title that was acquired out of TIFF. That was I, Tanya, And we got some news about that today. Yeah. I mean, I, Tanya has just gotten its release date, December, I believe, yeah, December as you 8th, reported. Yep, yep. So that puts it into kind of prime award season territory. Plus, it promises to be an entertaining movie. I think you can never discount that when, when folks are deciding which movies to to sit down and watch. If you can promise them something that's going to be a little over the top and entertaining, right. I don't think that hurts. No, and just for listeners, this is a Tanya Harding biopic, if everyone can recall the skater who got into a little bit of trouble in the 90s, became a tabloid figure having already been a champion-level figure skater. She's played in this movie by Margot Robbie, who's also a producer of the film, trying to show a different side of herself. The other thing that really popped out of TIFF was the performance of Allison Janney as Harding's mother. She's going to be tough to beat in the Best Supporting Actress race, I would think. The interesting wild card here is that the distributor that did get it for $5 million out of Toronto is Neon, which is sort of new to the scene. Earlier this year, they became a, officially a company, and you wonder if that's a, a good thing or a bad thing for an underdog kind of movie like this, because on the one hand, they are going to focus 100% on this movie's success. It could put them on the map, but they also may not have as much experience with this type of thing. No, I think that they'll have to turn to established consultants, because obviously as a new company, you haven't built up the kind of lists that players who have been around for a while have. Yeah. So we'll see about that. The same night that we learned the Toronto Audience Award winner and runner-up, we also had the Emmys. This was a week ago from Sunday, and I bring that up, even though it's a little bit in the past, just because I wonder if there are implications for the Oscar race in the results and also maybe just the makeup of the results. So I want to talk to you first, I guess, John Lithgow won Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for The Crown, playing Winston Churchill, who's also who the Best Actor frontrunner is in the mix for playing. That's Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour. So, Greg, what do you think? Is that going to help or hurt him? I actually, I think it kind of helps because you have this interesting contrast. Obviously, lots of people saw The Crown, and, and John Lithgow was great in it, but he was playing the, the aged Churchill at the end of his career. Now... Gary Oldman stepping forward and playing Churchill at one of his most vigorous periods right at the beginning of World right. War II, also a period in time that overlaps with the movie Dunkirk, so we have right. a real <laughs> history lesson going on right. here. It's like watching different actors play Hamlet, though. I think people might appreciate Oldman even more when they contrast him to what Lithgow did. Very interesting, and I know that you also noticed something that people have been remarking upon a little bit in the days since the Emmys, which is that they really set a high bar for diversity for the Oscars, which has struggled with that in the last few years. It's gotten better a little bit, in at least this past year, and they have certainly continued to increase the diversity of their own voting body. But what do you think of that? 
Oh, I, I think the folks in the Academy who, who would like to see more diversity at the Oscars had me watching the Emmys with a lot of envy. There's just no way this year's Oscars is going to equal what we saw at the Emmys in terms of the the array of, of talent, both yeah. in front of and behind the camera, that were both nominated and, and which won. It was, I think they said, the third year in a row that they'd set a new record for the amount of diversity among the nominees and then probably an unprecedented amount among the winners. In fairness to the Oscars, there are a lot more categories at the Emmys and also a lot more programming to choose from. So, you know, it becomes comes back to this age-old argument, should the Academy be making more diverse choices or should the industry be giving them more diverse options to choose from? Obviously, in a perfect world, it would all turn out a little bit more inclusively. But I guess let's move on to the box office where this past weekend we've just seen the openings of several contenders, the aforementioned Victoria and Abdul with Judy Dench, as well as Battle of the Sexes, and Stronger with Jake Gyllenhaal, Battle of the Sexes with Emma Stone. We're still feeling the ripple effects of last weekend, though, when Mother, a movie directed by Darren Aronofsky and starring his girlfriend, the Oscar winner Jennifer Lawrence, really shook things up and, you know, divided people. You had A.O. Scott at the New York Times saying it's a masterpiece. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you had Rex Reed saying it's the worst movie of the century. So I wonder where you fall on that and also just how a movie like that tends to pan out when it comes to awards. Well, I I think it was fascinating. I mean, I think at the end of a summer when we complained about how many movies are predictable, here was a movie that was completely unpredictable. I saw it in Century City and it's opening Friday night. And that audience didn't have walkouts. In fact, the folks sitting beside me as the movie ended, the guy started doing his serious movie analysis about it. <laughs> I would expect it will divide Academy members just as it divided general audiences. But there might be a few more folks in Hollywood who are willing to give it a hearing for the fact that it is different. I think you're right. And in fact, just today I was at a lunch with a bunch of Academy members and one of them, the guy to my left, started talking about Mother. I guess they screened it at the Academy on Friday night as well when it opened. And he said there was a very full house. It was a younger turnout than they generally get for screening. So the question is, are those younger members or are those people bringing their grandkids who want to see Jennifer Lawrence? But regardless, he said he loved it and found it was fairly well received there. So contrary to the signs that come from an F cinema score, which is reflective of audiences not getting what they expected, maybe, as you say, maybe it will play better with the Academy. But I do wonder if it, you know, if you're Paramount, whether it's their publicity, marketing, or awards teams, they have a tall order this year. It looked like they had struck gold on paper when you see a movie with Jennifer Lawrence, directed by Darren Aronofsky. You see Downsizing, a movie directed by Alexander Payne with Matt Damon. And you see Suburbicon, a movie from a Coen Brothers script, directed by George Clooney, again with Matt Damon. It looked like everyone should be envious. And now, meanwhile, each of these look like very challenging projects for, for Paramount. Well, they're challenging, but Paramount's done something very interesting this weekend. They've embraced the controversy, and they've taken out ads that have a range of quotes, acknowledging head-on that you might not like this movie. And I was reminded, one of the few times I've seen a studio do this was way back in the day with Mummy Dearest. Really? Mummy Dearest opened, a lot of people hated it, and... 
there was a renegade marketer at Paramount who said, okay, let's embrace the controversy. And he took out a famous ad that just had this big quote on it, no wire hangers ever. <laughs> Faye Dunaway hated it. Right. She thought they were making fun of the movie. But, you know, if you have a controversial movie, probably better to embrace the controversy than to try to step back and, and pretend it doesn't exist. Very interesting. Well, it's an interesting time in the race because – a lot of people have shown their hands, and yet there's no clear front runners in almost any of the major categories yet. I guess people would argue Gary Oldman's out front for Best Actor, maybe Janney for Best Supporting Actress. But other than that, certainly for Picture, the other acting categories, the other ones people pay attention to, Doc Foreign, even Animated, it's it's there's a lot of question marks still. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes it more interesting. I mean, there, there's no steamroller at the moment. Absolutely. Well, Greg Kelday, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you, Scott. And now for my conversation with Dame Judi Dench. I sat down with the 82-year-old who celebrated the 60th anniversary of her professional acting debut earlier this month in the green room of the Directors Guild of America Theater in Los Angeles, where she was about to do a Q&A following a screening of Victoria and Abdul. Over the course of our conversation, we discussed a wide range of topics, among them how someone who aspired to be a theater designer wound up instead a performer, why she did very little screen acting until she was already decades into her career, what happened in 1997 with the movie Mrs. Brown and the mogul Harvey Weinstein that changed her career, how over the years since she has managed to defy the old Hollywood adage that it's all downhill for an actress after the age of 40, namely by landing all seven of her Oscar noms, including the one that resulted in a win, after the age of 63, what the greatest challenges and rewards are of portraying royalty, whether on stage or as Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love or as Queen Victoria, first in Mrs. Brown and now, 20 years later, in Victoria and Abdul, plus much more. There is nothing like a dame, so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Dame Judy, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin on this podcast just by asking very basic. First question, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in York in England and I was brought up there and my father was a doctor and I had two brothers. And, and your mother was a, a housewife? Yes. She was a very fiery Irish woman. <laughs> There's no reason for you to remember this, but I've had the opportunity to interview you a few times before and I remember being very struck by the fact that you remember very specifically when you first acted, even just sort of horsing around in school, and then also a specific moment when you knew that you wanted to be an actress for a living. And I wonder if you can share that with our listeners. Yes, I, I played a snail when I was five. I never remember whether it's four and 20, I think it's four and 20 tailors yeah, yeah. went to kill a snail. Yeah. It's not sailors, was it? I don't think no. so. <laughs> And I can remember all I had to do was creep across the stage in an enormous shell that my father had made. I can remember on the night that my parents came to see it, or the afternoon, I expect, because right. we were all very little, <laughs> I stood up and I just remember the headmistress saying, get down, <laughs> Judith, standing in the wings, yours. <laughs> I remember it very, very Your clearly. Your first critic, indeed. right? Yeah. <laughs> now, and then as far as knowing that it was something, as you got a little older and were 
I mean, I, th- I recall that your plan was to be a designer for theater. Yes. I guess like a production designer? Or a theater a cost- designer. A theater designer. So Set designer. How does that, on one moment, one evening, change that? One evening in the 50s, when I went to see Michael Redgrave in, in Lear, mm-hmm. in Stratwell. It wasn't the Royal Shakespeare Company, but it was at Stratford-on-Avon. Yep. And the set was just an enormous open stage no curtain came in i was only used you know to thinking the curtain was there you designed the set right the play went on and in the interval you changed the Mm -hmm. set or you changed certain things about it but this was an enormous spread kind of it looked like a (laughs) poppadom or a biscuit on Mm -hmm. the middle of the stage Mm -hmm. and then in the middle was something that represented a cave and a throne and everything, and and so that the action was completely fluid. Nothing, kept, you know, mm-hmm. certain things, people brought things mm-hmm. on, but nothing was halted, mm-hmm. and that just made me think, that is sublime designing, but I don't have that imagination for it. Wasn't there also something with your brother who was an actor, right? My brother only ever wanted to be an actor. Yeah. One, my, The younger of my two mm-hmm. brothers, Jeff, only ever wanted to be an actor. And he went to the central school and he would come home and explain all about it and say what they were learning, how they were approaching things. And I suppose I caught it from him. So those combination of things, I guess, roughly around the same time made you decide to pursue this. How for your very first professional job, 60 years ago this month, we should know, congratulations, did you end up at the Old Vic in Hamlet? It's sort of like it couldn't have been scripted more perfectly. So how did how did you wind up there? Well, it was called very, very good luck <laughs> because right. Michael Bentor had taken over the old Vic and had decided to do every play of Shakespeare's in a five-year plan. Mm-hmm. He only repeated one, which was Hamlet, mm-hmm. and the first year with Richard Burton and the last year with John Neville. And I was leaving Central just before they started mm-hmm. the last year in 1957, and they saw me at our final show and I was cast. And did you immediately realize, I, I guess, what a huge deal that was, or did I it... realized that the critics weren't very kind? Oh, really? They gave they gave you a hard time? <laughs> yeah, they wow. did. Who did you play? I played Ophelia. Okay. Well, so but nevertheless, you persisted, and for the next few decades, you made your way through the whole Shakespearean canon, right? And this was also at Trafford and the Old Vic. I had wondered if screen acting had any allure for you in those at the outset in those early years, or was it just not on the radar? It wasn't on the radar at all. I had no no desire to be a, a film actor at all. And then I was told by somebody that nor would I be. Well, what <laughs> so was that about? I was sent up about a film, and this man who was perfectly nice to me, the whole of the thing, then said, actually, you won't ever make a film, because he said, you have everything wrong with your face for filming. Jesus, this is a director so, at an audition. Yes. That's uh, that's pretty ridiculous. It was fine. Yeah? And I very happily went back to doing Shakespeare and the theatre, because which screen is all acting, I ever wanted to be. Yeah, I was going to say, it had never been a particular ambition. Had you been even into movies as a kid? Not much. Bambi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which I've never let my daughter see. It is true. Or my grandson. Yes. Too sad. Yes. 
I think you, you mentioned your daughter, and I think she had something to do with why television eventually entered the picture, though. Why did you end up, in, in addition, or, or during a, certainly a period after already being on the stage for quite a number of years, why did you start working in TV? Well, when I've tried to work it as well as I can around the family. Yeah. When she was born, I, I did the theatre because she would go, you know, go to bed as a baby and I could go to the theatre. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes Michael as well, because we did the same things together. But then when she started then a, a bit later to go to school, then I actually, it happened that I was cast in a television situation comedy. So that meant, you know, that when she was at school, I rehearsed for the television and yeah. then I had evenings. That's great. You know, with the family. Now, I, I believe the TV show that you must be referring to would have been A Fine Romance. And That's right. This is the... You're very good at your homework. Oh, thank you. I try. You got to come prepared for you. And, and that is the... That was in the early 80s, I guess, and was the first time really that... I guess, you know, certainly within the theater world, people really knew who you were. But did this bring you to a, a much larger audience? Did you find, I think it was you and your husband, right, it on was. the show? Yes, it was. Well, I suppose so. But it was unbelievably difficult to do. Really difficult. Why is that? Because you, you read it on a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. By Wednesday, you know it. And you've set the piece. You rehearse it Thursday. Friday, Saturday, and on Sunday, I used to stand, because you're introduced to the audience, yeah. and I used to stand there thinking, how have I, I mean, every single episode, how have I got myself into this? <laughs> because you, you know, you come out and they would introduce you, right. and then you would have to suddenly turn around and, and do the scenes, you know, comedies yeah. to audiences. You have to trust your comedy instinct. Right. Now, so I take it then that you preferred theatre acting to that type oh, yeah. of that? Or theater, theater acting to everything. Really? And oh, is yes. that, what is it about theatre acting? We can well, see what's not great about TV acting from what you've just described, but what is the allure of theatre well, acting? just that you get more chances to, to have a go at it. Right. To get it better. Sometimes to get it worse, you know, you have to be dragged back by your director, told not to do something. Right. But, but at least you, you know, you, it it is entirely different every single night, and it's an amalgam between you as an actor and the audience who come that night. I don't think the audience realise how different it is every night. Yeah, but it's entirely their reaction, and you telling them the story. And every night you learn something new. So for the layman who might assume that it just is feels repetitive and maybe gets monotonous doing the same general thing every night, you say absolutely not. Yes, I do. I do think that each night is, and for some extraordinary reasons, sometimes something just all falls into place. Rarely mm -hmm. it happens that, but it can happen like that. So in 1988, you became Dame Judy instead of just Judy. This was when you were crowned Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, which is about as great an honor, I guess, as a British actress can ever hope for. Were you at that point, already almost 30 years ago, perfectly content with how life and work were going, or were you still hoping to have more of an international career, more of a film career, things like that? No. 
Not interested in those at that no, time. Just, I was a, an actor at the National Theatre mm-hmm. with Peter Hall, who alas has just died, mm-hmm. and I just had a, a, a wonderful time there. And we were doing Anthony and Cleopatra, mm-hmm. and it was Tony Hopkins' birthday, and the announcement came out that I was also being made a dame. So at the National, you all look in on a kind of courtyard, all the dressing rooms. Mm-hmm. So they sang. Oh, that's great. They sang Happy Birthday, and there was nothing like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You had been occasionally doing films as the years went by. I, I know Room with the View and, and Tea with Mussolini and some others, but it seems like one thing I have to ask you about before the big turning point, which I guess was Mrs. Brown, even before that, you started another chapter in film with M in the Bond movies, the first one being... Goldeneye in 1995, and then just for listeners, subsequently six others, which were 97, Tomorrow Never Dies, 99, The World Is Not Enough, 2002, Die Another Day, 2006, Casino Royale, 2008, Quantum of Solace, and 2012, Skyfall, at which point... Uh, and ver- Spectre. And a, a sort of a cameo in Spectre I as well. I did a morning's work in Spectre. That's great, right. So we'll correct the record, it was but Because eight. I'm still sulking about out of it. I've never seen, well, I've never seen the film. Well, because I was going to ask you, I mean, was it as... Sadly, we lost M in Skyfall, but what did the 007 chapter... How did it come about and what did it mean to you as an actress? I was just asked to play M by Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, and Michael said, you've got to do it. Because I would like to live with a Bond woman. That's 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 why you were you were a Bond. And I had girl. a very nice right. time. That's yes. Great. So what I referenced a moment ago was a film that on October third it will be twenty years since it hit theaters and really I think totally changed your career. And that is another one, by the way, in which you played Queen Victoria, Mrs. Brown. And I want to ask you about that because. As I recall, that was originally going to be a television project. It was, it was, yes. So, what was it that sort of happened with that, with Harvey Weinstein, with all the things twenty years ago that that changed the course of your career? Well, it was Harvey, I think, uh, because as you said, it was made for television. It was made in thirty days <laughs> with very, very little money by John Madden, and Harvey finally saw the cut of it and said, "This is not." really a, a film for television. You know, this is a movie, big movie. And so suddenly there it was. And that has changed my career fantastically because, you know, I've done an enormous amount of filming after that. It's amazing how much you've packed into these last 20 years. And but with that one, I think you said you'd been away from America for a very long time before, I guess, you came back with the Oscars? I think it Oscars? was 38 years, because yeah. I was here in 58. Wow, okay. And then suddenly I came back with Billy Connolly right. for the showing of Mrs. Brown. And do you remember where, where was that? Where was the premiere? It was here in L.A.? No, it was in New York. In New York. Mm-hmm. So the film starts going over very well, and to the extent that after that, at the age of 63, you became a first-time Oscar nominee. And in the lead actress category, we should know. I don't know if there's anyone else that that can say that. And so I I remember subsequently hearing that you wrote John Madden a letter 
after Mrs. Brown, but before mm. Shakespeare in Love, yes. that sort of led to it. So what, can you share how yes, you wound I, up? I had the most glorious time working okay. with John, and subsequently, of course, on the two Marigold films yes. with him. And after Mrs. Brown, I, I wrote him a letter and said, I've had such a wonderful time at any time. You've got anything in any film of, you know, if you want me to walk across the back <laughs> and sweep up something, or I, I'll do anything. I'll do anything at all. Right. And then a bit later he said, actually, he wrote and said, I have got something which constitutes walking across the back. <laughs> and, and you say that because we're talking about eight minutes of screen time, right? About that. About that for Shakespeare in Love. This was not even a year later. So a year after... You were nominated for Mrs. Brown. You won for these eight wonderful minutes in Shakespeare and Love for John. And I, I've got to ask you about what is the significance of an Oscar win? Did it change? Did that open up the door to better opportunities or change people's perception of the idea that now you were a film actress as well as a theater TV actress? What, what, what changed? Know. I don't know. All I know is that we ca- I came straight from from Los Angeles here, and I was, uh, Michael and Fenty were both with me, and they took the Oscar and went straight back to London, (laughs) and I flew to New York to be in Amy's View on stage at the Barrymore, which was a glorious, glorious time. I had a lovely time here. That, I believe. So, but what does that tell us, that you were just itching to get back to the theater, even at the greatest moment that somebody can have in a film career, the theatre was still what drew you most of all? Well, yes, I don't know what I would have done anyway. Mm -hmm. Let's follow up on Harvey, if we can, for a second, because I believe that over the next few years, you became something of what I guess this, this guy Malcolm Gladwell calls an outlier in the sense that people say, you know, in Hollywood or in this business, by 40, it's it's downhill. Meanwhile, you have had seven Oscar nominations since 63. And just to remind people, aside from Mrs. Brown and Shakespeare in Love, 2000 Chocolat, 2001's Iris, 2005's Mrs. Henderson Presents, 2006 Notes on a Scandal, and 2013's Philomena. All but one of those, which I believe was Iris, were in a movie distributed by Harvey and Harvey. Bob. So I just want to ask you, Thanks, Harvey. Uh, Thanks, Harvey. <laughs> well, to that to that point, though, you have joked, a, and I actually, it's not a joke. What did you do? You have a tattoo. That is something between Harvey Weinstein <laughs> and me. Can I beg you to please share? Because it's the now, funniest thing I've ever I heard. Possibly tell you that. <laughs> okay, so you wanted to express your gratitude to Harvey for for all of the all of these opportunities. Which, by the way, you it's not like it was a one-sided deal. You made so many great movies for this guy. But I believe it was The Four Seasons in New York. Having lunch. Having lunch with Harvey. That's when I did. What, what happened? I just told him what I'd done. <laughs> there were quite a lot of us there, too. Charlie Rose was there. <laughs> I said, I'm so grateful to you, Harvey. This is very cheap. This is great. It's great. I've had your name tattooed on my bum. <laughs> And I showed him. <laughs> you mooned Harvey at the Four Seasons. That's yes, a, okay. but I think I did it again at the Royal Opera House in London. <laughs> and now, was this an actual tattoo? or How can I possibly tell you We'll that? never know. We'll never know. <laughs> Maybe on the way out. But <laughs> so anyway, but those many films that I just mentioned, is there one that certainly pre the one that we will move on to that is the focus of this evening... 
has there been one film experience that stood out to you as particularly gratifying or a rewarding part to play or complex part to play? We've talked about so many here. Oh, ma- many, many complex. But yeah. you know, I'm not. I'm. I'm very squeamish about watching. Yeah. And and unlike the theatre, once you've done it and it's there, you can't change it. Right. So so I am very squeamish about watching myself let's frame it this way if there was a college class studying the work and art of dame judy dench and they could only screen one film which would you want them to see probably notes on a scandal okay why that i haven't seen room with a view quite a lot of films i haven't seen because it you know it's a kind of oh it's the most glorious part to play she's a real person you simply wouldn't want or need in your life or near your house (laughs) and the unfortunate thing is that once you play a part it somehow reminds people of the same kind of character so you get off at the same kind of part again Mm -hmm. and that in the way is the last thing you want to do and that one was unlike and that one yes i'd read the book Jeffrey Palmer gave me the book, mm-hmm. and I'd read it, and I just had, I just loved playing it. It was an amazing performance. And so the the latest one, though, in, in this long line of, of great performances is in Victorian Abdul, which I saw, I guess, a week ago at the Toronto International Film Festival. It was so well received there. And it reunites you with your Philomena director, Stephen Frears, and with the part of Queen Victoria, which we've said you played 20 years ago in Mrs. Brown. This time, it's a very little-known story of her pretty much the most unlikely friendship with a visitor from India. I guess what primarily drew you to the project? Well, what drew me to it, apart from the fact that Stephen Frears, who I've worked with, this is the fifth time I've worked with him. Wow. What drew me to it was that having done Mrs. Brown, I had only known the, the history of Victoria through her marriage to Albert and subsequently her relationship with John Brown. But, of course, it was the letters were discovered only in 2010. Mm-hmm. So no one has known... I mean, I'm sure there were a few people who did know. And didn't want but, to share. But yeah. the public, I think, haven't known. And therefore, because the letters were mostly in Urdu, they were not considered to be important, Mm -hmm. but they were found. And it just shows something about this woman and, I mean, her life with Albert and then then subsequently, as I say, with John Brown, Mm -hmm. that that need in her, Mm -hmm. need and ache in her and needing incredibly to be allowed to get rid of everybody and to have a conversation with somebody and to learn from them. And I think he was her spiritual advisor as well Mm -hmm. as everything else. Mm -hmm. But she felt all this kind of very, very complex feelings of love for him. Mm -hmm. And I think it, I'm sure that it prolonged her life. I'm sure. What for you was the most interesting part of playing her? Because you've played Queens before. We've not only... Queen Victoria, but also Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare in Love and perhaps others. You're sort of the equivalent of royalty in your profession. No, no. I, I, I would say, I, I, you can't yeah. say it, but I'll say it. But I just wonder, what is the most interesting aspect of playing somebody like this? Is it the mystery of what actually went on? I guess here with the letters, we have some insight, but 
what is at the what's at the root of people's curiosity about the monarchy and and makes you want to I think it maybe that this might be a kind of spotlight or, or insight on how human they are mm-hmm. they don't choose to be in that position and the the weight of responsibility of monarchy must be horrendous mm-hmm. i mean at the very beginning of the film you hear Henry Ponsonby saying, and tomorrow you'll do this, and after that you'll do that, Mm -hmm. and then you'll do that, and that, and Mm -hmm. that, and that. Well, that wasn't just that day. That was every day. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? I mean, how would we feel about somebody saying, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life, (laughs) every day, a responsibility? So the chance of meeting... Very, very strange. I mean, in her 80s, with all her friends dying, and and suddenly she meets this young man who she finds that she can talk to mm-hmm. and respond to and obviously is attracted by, and who wouldn't be? Right. And, you know, it's... Well, it tells just another strand of her life. Is India something that is, apart from movies, of interest to you? Because... We know that we've seen you go there in the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel movies. And I know part of the allure of that was getting to work with all these other great actresses, somebody like Dame Maggie Smith, I think you go back to 1958 with. So there's that component. But I wondered, watching those, are you drawn to India just out of your own curiosity? And now to have India essentially come to you in this movie, is it just coincidental? Yes, coincidental. But I long to go back. I just found India... I mean, I kind of bored for India mm-hmm. after I'd been there the first time for mm-hmm. eight weeks. Then we got the chance to go. And with John Madden again. Yeah, right. Then we got the chance to go back. And after I came back the second time, my daughter said to me, you found your spiritual home, mm-hmm. she said. And I did just love it. So maybe you connect to some of the same things that Victoria saw in... Yes, but she, alas, of course, was never allowed to go. Right, right, right. Well, last two, if I may, I know that one thing we talked about the last time I interviewed you was that you're amazing. You you work harder, it seems like, than anybody, and you keep churning out so much great work. And it seems like in terms of health, the main thing that you've said has bothered you is macular degeneration, which I know must be very frustrating. So I guess just on that level, I was amazed to read that you said that even before that, you like to have scripts read to you. Is that true? Yeah, I like somebody to tell me the story. Okay. I remember Howard Davis came mm-hmm. to tell me the story of Mother Courage. I was very, very angry with him after the first day because <laughs> he didn't tell me. Right. What he admitted to tell right. me was how hard she had to work right. on right. stage and how long it was. Right. I was f- furious. I do like that. I mean, that is, that is our business, isn't it, to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Come out and tell the audi- that audience that story or to film and tell them it. So to have somebody tell it to you is, you know, it's an eye-opener. So has that made this any easier? With oh, the, yes, it yeah. may, oh, yes, it doesn't matter about that. It doesn't, okay. No, you adapt to it, you know, you yeah. adapt to everything. And as long as I know that there's something on the stage, I, I learn about it, so I, then it's no problem. So the, the last question, I guess, is just, you've said that is not a deterrent, doesn't get in the way of acting, but nevertheless, what keeps you working as hard and as much as you do. You know, some would say 
they might prefer to retire and just enjoy enjoy you know regular life. What is it that I know you hate that word? Banned but, in but my it's house. It's banned in your house. Okay, well it won't be said again here. But what separates you from from so many other people who say I just want to relax? Well, that's their choice. Yeah, people want to relax. Some people don't do the job that fulfills them, and you know then the need that they have to work. Right. Some people have at work earn some money, and then want to retire and do the things they want to do. I want to go on working mm-hmm. because that's what I like to do best. Please don't ever... Selfishly, I hope you never stop. It's such a treat, and I really appreciate you doing this. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.